0: Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue.
1: Hello and welcome to Dialogue. In late January, 50 high-profile Australians led by former Australian Foreign Affairs Ministers Bob Bukar and Gary Evans called on the governments to take action to defuse tensions between the United States and China They said they support a balance of power in the Indo-Pacific region in which the United States and China respect and recognize each other as equals. What led to this move by these prominent Australian figures? Just how significant is the China-U.S. relationship for global peace and prosperity as well as in the Asia-Pacific region? And what steps can be taken by third parties like Australia to mitigate the negative consequences of the strained relationship? Join us for our discussion. I'm Xu Duo. Joining us for today's show is former Australian Foreign Minister Bob Carr. Welcome to Dialogue, Mr. Carr. Uh, you know, at the end of the January, you and uh, your colleagues have wrote a statement, you know, calling for Australian government <coughs> to adopt uh, an activist middle power role to avert or to mitigate China-U.S. tensions. Uh, so, what motivated you and your colleagues to issue such a statement?
0: The danger of war and the danger of an adversarial relationship between the United States and China becoming entrenched and increasing the chance of a war coming about by accident, by mistake. We believe that the model achieved between uh, the the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, when Henry Kissinger was Secretary of State, should guide us here. It is possible for countries that are in competition, ideological, strategic competition, economic competition, to set guardrails and reinforce guardrails to avoid a descent into war. That happened with detente between America and the Soviet Union. And the idea of such a detente should be cultivated by a middle power like Australia and carefully planted with our friends, allies, and partners.
1: Well, uh, if you look at uh, the China-U.S. relationship, uh, you know, you said you're worried about, uh, you know, an incident or accident that could uh, basically bring in, bring about something uh, dangerous, uh, military conflict conflict, or even a war between the two countries. Um, But we have seen, you know, the two leaders, uh, they met each other in November last year. And uh, since then, we do see stabilizing uh, effects between the two sides and they are talking to each other again uh, on trade front, on military front. Uh, how do you describe, how do you characterize the current ties between the two countries now?
0: I think the, the recent improvement, and you're referring to the November summit between the two presidents, is an opportunity for us to strive harder uh, and to look at a more permanent relaxation intentions. What I'd like to see is more negotiations, more dialogue still. It is good that we can point to relaxation intentions. It is very useful that we can point to both sides appearing to respect the red lines of the others over Taiwan, for example. But this should only encourage us to look at something even better entrenched, a commitment to both sides to a running dialogue would enable for example progress on arms control and would enable both sides not surrendering the opportunity to compete peacefully for a moment uh enabling both sides to achieve higher targets in partnership for faster decarbonization of the world's economy i think the opportunities for, for cooperation are real i think america's um america's attempts to contain china and to establish that its its strategic economic interests are protected, have gone far enough to satisfy American political concerns. I think China has made points that it would want to make about the need for a, a world order that acknowledges its rise as a great power. I think it's time for both sides to say, let's develop an agenda based on additional dialogue and in the words of Henry Kissinger, an attempt to expand the areas of collaboration, not limit them, but to expand the areas where both sides can collaborate for mutual advantage.
1: Well, you said, uh, you know, um, to expand the cooperation. What we are seeing is, of course, is not the satisfactory uh, state uh, relationship right now, you do see the decoupling efforts, or now it's called de-risking, and of course, uh, you know, some would say China-U.S. relationship is a, a structural uh, challenge. Uh, China as a status quo power, and the China, uh, you know, U.S. is status quo power. China's rising power. Uh, there's something, uh, you know, very hard to compromise. You know, for the U.S. to uh, you know accept China as equals, or uh, you know, for China to be contained by the U.S. What's your take on that?
0: I don't think it's hard for America to accept China as, in the words of, um, of Kurt Campbell, one of the American policymakers, a near-peer power, a near-peer power. What's so hard about saying that China is near-peer status with the United States? I think the challenge for America is to overcome the view that everything China does is a threat to American primacy. If your focus is continued American primacy in a rapidly changing world, um, where more nations than not have got a uh, have got China as their number one trade partner, then you can you, then it's very easy to become jumpy and edgy and anxious. America need not see the world as one in which their primacy is constantly under challenge. That's that's the wrong psychology. America ought to relax at the continuing competitive strength of their economy, at the formidable nature of their military, so superior to that of uh, any other three challenges combined. Um, America should rely on its soft power, on its status in the world, on its reputation as a diplomat. Uh, China, for its part, should not be as nervous and agitated about having its rise recognized. The fact is, among China's neighbors in Southeast Asia, for example, there's a quiet recognition that China is the dominant power in the region, measured by economic progress, that its strategic power um, has risen to meet or overshadow that of the United States. But while not wanting America gone, Southeast Asians are confident that they can negotiate with this powerful China. And China, therefore, needs to be less assertive, less of a wolf warrior, um, and more concerned to build friends through perhaps biding time and concealing its strength, to take the words of Deng Xiaoping. Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Mr. Carr, you talked about, uh, you know, Australia to play such a (laughs) role in the middle to bridge the differences between China and the U.S. to bring the two countries together for dialogue and to build a stable and uh, you know constructive relationship, uh, so-called comprehensive new detour between the two sides. Why Australia? If you look at other countries in the middle between China and the U.S., uh, you know some of them uh, the would choose sides. Others would say, you know, we want to stay in the middle. We refuse to choose sides. You know, either with Beijing or, or Washington. Uh, but you know, what makes Australia? the choice to
0: play such a role? Precisely because we're seen as such a a trusted and close ally of the United States, we can have influence in Washington by inviting Americans to look to the longer-term implications of their relationship with China. Yes, there has been an improvement in relations since the summit of President Xi and President Biden in California in November. But what about looking beyond that Is it possible that America's economic containment of China is now being exhausted? To go any further would damage America as much as China. Is it it possible that China might conclude that aggressive diplomacy has simply seen more countries reach out to the United States and join the American alliance system? On on the American side, again, have not American's got time to ruminate about the practical effect of what they did in 2018, that is declare that China is a strategic rival. All that did was to bring about closer cooperation between China and Russia. If America had thought more carefully about the declarations it was making in 2018 about how it regarded China, it might have taken that into account. I just think both sides are challenged by by the, the prospect of smarter diplomacy. And remember Henry Kissinger's warning that without that smarter diplomacy, the world faces the danger of a descent into something as catastrophic as World War I.
1: Yeah, as uh, that's the danger, you know, people talked about uh, between China and the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, Mr. Carr, if you look at the, uh, Australia, as you said, is a strong ally of uh, the United States. Australia is part of the, uh, you know, uh, let's say a quad uh, system. Uh, of course, it's also 5i network. Uh, and uh, this is AUKUS, uh, my member of the three uh, you know, countries, called AUKUS. Uh, the new uh, block there so you know will that that mean you know australia uh you know is in in an easier position or in a bad position to persuade washington to have washington listen to the opinions you know to adopt probably new approach to deal with uh, with china with their strategy in this region
0: yeah I, th- I think there's a real opportunity for australia given its reputation as a steadfast us ally to invite america to look beyond the immediate horizon where does america want to be in respect of a china that will continue to grow even if at a slower rate than it had in recent years china will continue to grow Uh, china's challenged by its demographics it's it's challenged by other restraints Um, but nonetheless china will be there um, depending on what test you take as the world's biggest economy or as the world's number two economy with a with a military strength to match. Um, therefore, policymakers in the US, especially given that they're challenged by uh, the policies of President Putin's Russia, have got a natural interest in exploring whether they can benefit as much as China for an expansion of areas of collaboration with the 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 all the all the investment in contain economic containment of China with all the, the, the strengthening of the U.S. alliance system in Asia, is it not time now to explore whether there are diplomatic advantages that would accrue to the U.S. from a higher level of collaboration and cooperation with China, not surrendering any vital American interest, not for a moment to give in to China's sometimes asserting diplomacy. For example, when it comes to maritime territorial disputes, With the philippines america's not having having strengthened its alliance system america can't be expected to weaken it um and china's got to live with a a new balance of power that to some extent has been created by its own assertive behavior i think there's opportunity for china to rethink some of its diplomatic positioning um in its own interests and this should create a spirit in which intelligent leadership on both sides can say the era of adversarial relations is now to be relegated. We're going to give an emphasis to, to broadening the areas of collaboration. That's Dayton.
1: Let's have a short break. We'll be back right after this.
2: From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms.
1: Welcome to Dialogue. So Mitch, uh, you know, we borrowed a term post-engagement. Of course, we refer to the um, years, the decades before probably Trump presidency as engagement. And then we do see increasing, let's say, uh, not really hostility, but uh, like kind of alienation between the two countries. Uh, And then we had this uh, San Francisco summit uh, where the two leaders decide that uh, they will work together to stabilize the relationship. Uh, So how do you characterize the current status of this uh, very important relationship between China and the United States?
3: The relationship has moved from one of what I call engagement, where the two sides were working together with business at the centerpiece. And since 2018 or thereabouts, uh, with the beginning of a trade war and then a subsequent tech war and, and whatever we want to call the other relationships, we've now moved into a post-engagement relationship where business has been subsumed under uh, an umbrella of national security by both countries, I believe. And so the relationship has fundamentally changed, but the one thing that's important to keep in mind is that the business relationship, has always been at the center because it's where we have the most direct shared interests. And that is where I focus. Uh, the The visit that President Xi made to San Francisco was very successful from the point of view of the American business community. And it set a very conciliatory, conciliatory tone, which I hope both sides will build on, and the American business community hopes that we can all build on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Major, talk more about this uh, trade relationship,
1: Uh, you know, trade and investment between the two countries. We know if you look at the the trade number, I believe uh, for 2022, for example, that's about, um, depending on the the calculation, you you have some differences, but largely it's about $700 billion. That's uh, a lot. I mean, uh, for the two countries, uh, that's probably too much for the two countries to decouple.
3: Well, that's right. I think, you know, um, the idea of decoupling is is um, fantasy. It's not a realistic way to address the relationship. And not just because of the fact that it's inadvisable from a business standpoint, which is what a lot of people like to think. The reality is both countries are so intertwined into the international economy now that if either side were to try to decouple from the other, The result is they end up isolating themselves. The United States controls basically global payments and the reserve currency that the entire world uses. Uh, China controls large to a large degree manufacturing and trade. So either country trying to decouple from the other will end up bringing negative consequences on themselves. And that's why the relationship, despite the challenges, still moves forward. Um and you and you see that the trade relationship while you know while challenged continues to to move forward as well. And that's that's very hopeful because shared interests have what have been what the relationship has been based on, and shared interests are what everyone can agree on. That's what started the relationship when Joe and and Dr. Kissinger began to architect reproach Mon in nineteen seventy-two. And we built on that relationship over the entirety of our time together. So there has been certainly um, a lot of challenges, and I would call them not a small amount of tensions between the two countries, but there is reason for hope. And there's also reason to see that the pendulum is starting to swing back towards realism and towards the practical nature of of there are just things that the united states and china just need to work together on uh, and i think everyone acknowledges that And those things might include uh, climate change and public health and uh, trying to help uh, in the developing world so that everybody can have a better future both countries depend on a stable global economy and if we start with those areas of common ground and we sort of maybe put aside some of the challenges, then we've, we might find ourselves in a better position than where we are now, which is just kind of talking past one another and uh, you know, feeling, feeling, having hurt feelings as it were um, you know, in our own countries. Because neither country is going to persuade the other that they're incorrect, but both countries can agree that there are certain things that we share in terms of common interests.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Mitch, you, you have been talk, talking about uh, this uh, business community. You know, from both sides, obviously they were, they are affected by this. Uh, you know, uh, say stress on national security. Sometimes, probably, like uh, you know, abuse of the concept of national security or overstretch of the idea that obviously affected this uh, investment and trade between between the, the two countries. Uh, w- what's the prospect? Uh, you know, like mm-hmm. in 2024 and the years uh, ahead. Uh, are we going to see stabilization, uh, let's say, you know, uh, kind of a peaceful coexistence for the two countries and then the business can continue with what they, they are doing, uh, both in China and the US, both from China and from the US. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, b- because, you know, these two countries are the two largest economies. They are importing the two businesses.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, there's 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 a lot of common ground between the two countries, but it's also important to notice there's a lot of similarities. I think there's a focus right now on the differences between the two countries. But I've always been struck, as an American in China, how many similarities our two countries share. First of all, we're both from great countries with proud histories. Granted, China's history is much, much longer than ours, but we do have a proud history. And, and also, we both believe in our own exceptionalism. We both believe that in this world, we have a unique role. I think both countries can make a very strong claim to that. So you asked me about what I see going forward. Well, 2024 is going to be a challenging year, I believe. And the reason is, is because it's an election year in the United States. And during an election year, uh, one thing we've known for many election cycles here is that China is always very much one of the top issues that people uh, who are who are seeking the office of president of the United States to always focus on, and that's going to actually intensify this year. Um, there's very few things that all Americans from from different political uh, strata can agree, but one thing they can agree is that that they want to see a different kind of relationship with China right now, and so that means that there's very little hope for you know a calming down of the relationship but i think that in this case i think china can play a very constructive role as we saw uh president xi do in san francisco we can probably hope to see much more of that kind of um conciliatory language which helps support the american business community because the american business community is very much looking to you know, continue to find ways to have win-win relationships in China, and that's that's kind of what we're sort of you know hoping we'll see in the middle of this. Hopefully, the business relationship between the U.S. and China can be a bright spot, and we need those bright spots uh, because the relationship is too important, as you say, and we need to we need to all be very focused on how do we ensure that the business relationship can, to the extent possible. Um, move forward in a constructive way for both sides. And, and in this case, I really do hope that my Chinese friends, uh, you know, surpass themselves to find ways to do that, because we're doing what we can in the American business community. Um, and, um, you know, and we hope our Chinese counterparts will do the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, for on the San Francisco summit, the two
1: leaders, the two presidents, you know, agreed to work together Um, You know, to manage this relationship uh, in a skillful way, uh, they do reach uh, a lot of agreements. Uh, For example, you know, the Chinese side promised to invite like 50,000 young Americans to China to study. The uh, Chinese side has uh, uh, said they are going to resume as much as possible the direct flights between China and the United States. I think that will be helpful. Uh, for tourists and also for business people, obviously. And uh, so, uh, you know, of course, it's very extensive, you know, a lot of agreements on different, uh, uh, different uh, uh, areas. Are we going to see, say, a faithful implementation, a good implementation of those agreements, uh, given, uh, I mean, or, or in another way, uh, will the election in any way affect the implementation of those agreements?
3: no i think that those agreements i think um there was a broad agreement that there was a need to bring down the temperature a little bit i think that was something that everybody thought would be helpful um so i think that that i think there's a good chance that 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 section of of agreements will continue to go forward um but there'll be a lot of rhetoric that we have to sort of to the side, and we have to remember we're in an election year in the U.S., so it's it's going to create some dynamics. But I I believe broadly we'll be able to implement those things going forward. And specifically on the idea of things like um, you know soft exchanges, such as American students to China. Obviously, this is very much in America's interest as well. Um, you know, uh, there are about two hundred and eighty or ninety thousand Chinese students in the United States right now, but but very few. American students in China and as someone who who very much believes in the need for Americans to go to China and be there and to learn the language and to understand um, how things are done in China, to, to look at things from the other point of view so that we can understand the relationship better. I, I'm, I'm obviously very much supportive and hopeful that that part of this will go forward, but not just that part. I think it's important to look back on the history of the u.s china relationship and remember that it started with ping pong diplomacy and i still have uh, a ping pong paddle signed by dr kissinger um, at the 30th anniversary of ping pong diplomacy at diaoyutai he gave me um, and i look at it sometimes to remind myself that this relationship began with very humble and small exchanges where we could agree on something And if we couldn't agree on anything else at least we could agree on ping pong and I think right now it's not a bad way to go forward. Let's agree on students going over to China. Let's agree on pandas coming back to the U.S. Let's agree on little things that we can build upon and feel good about and then move forward from there because that's, that's, that's a great way to create some stability. And I think that's an obligation, frankly, that both countries have to the world because there's no way that the world can feel safe and secure if the U.S.-China relationship isn't. Stable and secure, and that's something that I think is—it's a responsibility when you're a great power like China and like the U.S. It's a great—it's a great responsibility to 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 look at the needs of the entire world and not just our own needs. And I think these are the kinds of things that can be very helpful for that. Thank you, Mitch, for speaking with us.
1: With that, we come to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. Thank you for being with us. I'm Xu Qingduo. See you next time.